0: Hi, I'm Bob Sewell. I'm a lawyer. In fact, I'm a partner at the law firm at Davis Miles McGuire Gardner. I started this podcast because my clients always ask me, is that even legal? I want to discuss on this podcast how the law affects us and changes our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it is meaningful to you and I hope you learn from it. Thank you. Welcome, Paul, to the podcast, Is That Even Legal? I'm super excited to have you on. And the reason why I'm excited is you have a really unique background that you grew up in small town, Arizona, out in the mining country. And for someone to grow up in the mining country and then end up where you are right now is really interesting. You went out to Princeton and you were out with, the, uh, with those stuffed shirts out in the East Coast. And then you come back to Arizona Law School and you clerk for the Arizona Court of Appeals, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the Arizona Supreme Court. And now you're with a really interesting organization called the Institute for Justice. And this organization advocates um, to protect civil liberties for people in the United States. Um, Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. really, really great to be here. I want to tell the story of your client, Terry and Rhea Platt, and Terry and Rhea Platt have an interesting plight. They're an elderly couple and they lent their car to their son. And their son is driving the car and he gets pulled over by police for a window tent violation. And at some point, the police look inside the car, they do a search of the car, they find an amount of cash and a small amount of personal use marijuana. And eventually, during this process, the police seize the car and they begin to send it through the forfeiture process. Now, the Arizona law did not allow for the seizure of this car under the forfeiture process, but the prosecutor ignores the law and they forfeit the car to the seizure. So at this point, the parents say, hey, we want their car back. And they contact an attorney and the attorney says to them, I'd love to help you. You have a great case. Give me money. And the money ends up exceeding the value of the car. And so they decide I'm going to go it alone. And what happens from there?
1: Right, so, so Terry and Rhea, um, as, as you said, you know they tried to get their car back. Um, they tried to follow the process that Arizona law lays out, a very complicated and convoluted process. Uh, and, and they try and do it on their own. And they actually do a pretty good job of it for, for doing it on their own. Uh, they, the, the government says, if you wanna get your car back, you've gotta give us certain information, certain paperwork. They gather all that paperwork up. They have a very small amount of time to do it. They can't miss their deadlines because if you miss a deadline in the forfeiture process, you're done, you're out. Uh, and they get it all in on time. Uh, and uh, the prosecutor looks the paperwork and says, no, this is not good enough. Not only are you not getting your car back, you don't even get a chance to go to court to have your day in court because I say that, that this is insufficient and uh, the prosecutor asked the court uh, in an ex parte hearing, that's one where it's only the prosecutor and the judge, the Platts by law weren't allowed to be a part of it, uh, said, you know, give me the, give me the car. Um, And under Arizona law, the judge would have given the prosecutor Platts car.
0: Now, what's interesting here is the son was never charged with an underlying crime. So the, the property is being, is being forfeited under this process and son's not even charged.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things about civil forfeiture is, uh, and this is certainly true when we started working on this issue more than a decade ago. Uh, and it remains true today, despite a lot more attention being paid to the issue is that Civil forfeiture turns what most people think they know about the American justice system on its head. If, if anyone has, knows basic high school civics class or has even watched an episode of Law and Order, you know that if the police think you committed a crime, they can arrest you, they can take you before a judge. Uh, if you have to go to trial, you get a trial by jury. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you and at that trial the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed the crime that they've accused you of and and forfeiture isn't that throw all that out the window and forfeiture if the government thinks that your property is connected with the crime they can seize it they can attempt to keep it forever and if you want your property back you have to go to court and most of the time you have to prove your own innocence otherwise the government, and more than just the government, the prosecutors and the very police that that took your car get to keep it. They get to the profit from it. They get to keep the proceeds, cash, if they get to keep your car, sometimes it's your home, whatever it is, uh, they get to keep what they forfeit. And this profit incentive really warps the way that law enforcement does its job and, and, and does so in a very unconstitutional manner.
0: Is it Okay, I have to ask the question, is it even legal for a person who hasn't committed a crime to have their property forfeited
1: to the government? It shouldn't be, but according to the U.S. Supreme Court and and lots of other courts and the law of lots of states and the federal government, it is. Uh, Okay, I have to challenge you
0: then. Why do we have forfeiture laws. I mean, I can't imagine that the government really, really wants to take our property without
1: a proper reason. Why do we have these? So forfeiture is an outgrowth of admiralty law. Uh, back in the olden days, uh, if someone was suspected of committing a crime on the high seeds, like smuggling or piracy, you could take their boat and you could tow it into the, the nearest port and you could, it's, the government could essentially try and seize the boat. And, and, and that had sort of, we don't have piracy on the high seas really anymore. Uh, but in the 1980s, as part of the war on drugs, the government, the federal government, and the, after that the states rediscovered uh, 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 for, forfeiture, civil forfeiture. And began to apply it in new ways as part of the war on drugs. And the idea was, you have these big-time drug syndicates, these cartels, and we have to attack them with everything that we have. And one way we can do that is we're going to take their money. Uh, they're they're profiting from drugs. We're going to take their money. We're going to take the things they use to commit their crimes, like boats or planes or cars. And if they bought you know, lavish homes and all the rest of this stuff. We're gonna take it, we're gonna take it all. And that was the idea and that's where forfeiture really got started. And it got started very, very small in the 1980s. But over time, it's gotten bigger, bigger and bigger. And the federal government now takes in uh, billions of dollars every year through its forfeiture system of uh, which it oftentimes shares with, with state and local officials. Uh, in the state of Arizona, uh, back in, in 2000, the state brought in about $9 million in forfeiture that year. Uh, by, the, by 2010, 2011, it was up to $40 million. And it's stabilized right now somewhere around 25 to $30 million a year. That's how much they're bringing in. And if you look at the numbers, one of the problems that we've had with forfeitures for so long is that no one is exactly sure what's going on there, there's not been a lot of information or disclosure by the government um what we've come to learn with more information is that there are lots of forfeiture cases every year about 1400 a year in arizona as so far as we know and most of these cases are very small we're not going or they are not going after the big kingpin they're not seized. these aren't cases involving millions of dollars in drug money. These are primarily small cases for a couple thousand here, a couple thousand there, really sort of -of run-of-the-mill crimes, assuming that there's a crime at all, because as we talked about, you don't even need to show that anyone committed a crime in order to forfeit their property.
0: One of the things that I find just absolutely outrageous is that your client's story is you not is not unique. I have heard these stories before. I've had clients approach me when I was a younger attorney to try to get involved, and I said, "Man, this I can't really help you because me my involvement will exceed the value of your asset." And it's and I hate to say that right because that that's incredibly damning to the legal profession that I'm in. It's incredibly damning to the uh, process that is um, Arizona forfeiture law. But
1: also, this is not a unique problem to Arizona, is it? No, not at all. This is a a huge problem. And again, numbers are a little hard to come by. Thanks to some reforms that Arizona has already done, we're beginning to see some numbers come out. And we know that in less than 20% of forfeiture cases as anyone really try to get back their property. And in an even smaller percentage of that, does anyone ever have an attorney? And, and, and it's not uncommon. It's very common for the amount of the forfeiture or the, what's being forfeited to be less valuable than how much it would cost to hire an attorney. And, and, and when you consider that in forfeiture, the deck is stacked in favor of the government because they don't have to prove you committed a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to prove your own, e- your own innocence. You know, lots of lawyers, their job is to give their clients the best advice they can. And oftentimes their best advice is, you know, monetarily, it's just not worth it. Now, some states have started to reform in this area. Arizona is one of them. We've made it easier for people to be awarded their attorney's fees if they're successful. And that's a small step in the right direction, but that's not every state, and that's certainly not the federal government. And oftentimes, in forfeiture, people are left to fend for themselves against the government, and that's a a massive mismatch.
0: There's really two processes to forfeiture, right? I mean, there's a very simple process, and then there's a more complicated process. Tell me about the practicalities, the nuts and bolts nuts and bolts
1: how does it actually work sure so there's there's actually three kinds of forfeiture just to make things even more complicated so there's criminal forfeiture and that's a forfeiture that happens as part of a criminal process someone gets tried and actually convicted of a crime and then following that conviction there is a a a proceeding where the court can decide you know like sentencing but also how much to pay in fines or restitution to victims and a part of that can be a forfeiture of property that's not what we're talking about today we're talking about civil forfeiture and in civil forfeiture there's basically two kinds at least in arizona and this is pretty common nationwide certainly like the federal system there's a judicial forfeiture which is as it sounds it's a forfeiture proceeding that happens in front of a judge and then there is an administrative forfeiture. And that's a, a forfeiture that's not done in front of a judge. It's done in front of an agency or, or a, a prosecutor in many instances. And in Arizona, that's the, that's the case. There is this process called uncontested forfeiture, which is a big misnomer. These forfeitures can be contested just like any other. Um, but in those cases, the, the, the prosecutor has the ability to, to make uncontested forfeiture available. And if you stumble into that process, the prosecutor, the very prosecutor who's trying to forfeit your stuff, gets to decide whether or not he's going to keep it or return it or not. Um, And then maybe there's a way that you can get in back before a judge in that process, but not always. And that's, that's that's the real problem that my clients stumbled into through no fault of their own, where... They tried to get their property back, they're acting on their own, they don't have a lawyer, they do the paperwork as best they can, and according to the prosecutor, it's not good enough, so not only do they not get their car back, they don't even get their day in court. And, and so those, there's, some, there's some real problems with that. There's also a more simple process. Tell me about how that
0: ends up working.
1: So the, the, I mean, the most straightforward way that this process theoretically works is again the, the judicial process, um, and in that in that system, the way that works in Arizona is your property gets seized, and at some point it's seized for forfeiture. And then under Arizona law, there's a there's a, a particular deadline, I think it's 60 days, that the government has to make a decision as to whether or not it's going to forfeit your stuff. If it does, it has to file what's called a notice of uh, pending forfeiture. Um, and that's the, that's where we sort of split off into these two areas. If you file what's called a claim within 30 days, and it's got to be within 30 days, uh, that then means that you are making a claim on the property. Because again, in forfeiture, it's not a case against you, the person. Most of the time, it's a case against the property. So you get these weird names like you know, state of Arizona versus 1965 Mustang or state of Arizona versus Fifteen thousand dollars in currency. You know, there's some hilarious uh, examples in the federal, you know, United States versus uh, fifty thousand boxes, each containing one set of clacker balls. You get these bizarre cases because they're 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 a legal fiction. It's a case against a thing, and that thing can't be a can't be a litigant. But you file a claim, you make yourself a party to the case, and then you're 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 into at that point litigation there's the a complaint you have to file an answer there's discovery and then at the end of the day you get a hearing but not a jury trial in Arizona like most states you only ever get to appear in front of a judge never a jury and at, at in those proceedings the government has a burden to show uh, with clear and convincing evidence now in Arizona that you ha- that 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 your property is connected to a crime and if they can do that the burden shifts to you to prove your own innocence, to prove that you didn't know and could not have known that your property would somehow be used in a crime, and so that's that's actually the simple process. The complicated process is this uncontested process where you're in front of a you're you're in front of a, a prosecutor, and then the prosecutor gets to do some things, and maybe you can go in front of a judge, but maybe not. Maybe the prosecutor can cut you out, and that's. You know, that's one of the problems with, with the Arizona administrative forfeiture process is it gives the prosecutors, again, the very people who get to keep the thing that they're trying to take, the ability to deny you your day in court. And that's one of the issues that we've raised in our litigation. I
0: really like in concept the idea of forfeiture, I must admit. I, in concept, I like the idea. There's something offensive to me when you got the drug kingpin, and he's rolling in his, you know, his Bugatti, and he's got the massive yacht out there in the harbor, and he's living the lifestyle of, you know, of a king. And he then gets convicted, and he gets to keep all his stuff. He gets to keep the, the fruit of his ill-gotten gain. That's offensive to me. And so I like the concept Of forfeiting that property to the government when you've gotten it by illegal means. But there's something offensive by to me about how it's been playing out in practice in the recent years. I've heard of cases, and and you may or may not want to comment about this, but I've heard of cases of recent where um, the person, the defendant will be placed in a position
1: of, we'll charge you with the crime or you could let us keep your stuff. Have you heard of this? Absolutely. And, and the sad fact is we know that it's happening in Arizona as well. There's a, there's a, a well-known abuse called roadside waivers. And that's where you, know, you get pulled over, the police search your car, they find something they want to forfeit, and they say, you know what? We could arrest you right now. We could take you to jail. But if you sign this waiver form that says that that money isn't yours and you don't know where it came from, you'll never hear from us again. That's, that's just abusive. That's highway robbery. And in fact, there's a, an infamous case out of a, a place called Tejana, Texas. Uh, that was it's a case that was litigated by the ACLU several years ago, where the, the local police were just pulling people over on the highway, there's a highway that runs through Tahana, and police were pulling over lots of people, primarily minorities, and saying, you know what, uh, we're going to take you to jail tonight, uh, we're going to take your kids, we're going to put them in the child protective services, unless you waive, you know, your, your claim to this to this money or your car or what have you, and, and there aren't words strong enough that can be shared on a family-friendly podcast uh, to describe how evil that is and how big of an abuse that is. And, and going back to your original point that, that you know maybe we all think that, well, we shouldn't be able to profit from our crimes. And, and actually, I, I agree with you. We shouldn't be able to, to profit from our crimes. But one, the big drug kingpin is the outlier case. We know now that that's not the typical forfeiture case. The typical forfeiture case is, low level, maybe crime, maybe crime, but really low level, not a lot of money. That's the typical case. The second is that, you know, in this country, we have a process to determine whether someone has actually committed a crime, criminal trial. That's the process we need to use. And what we can't do is simply shortcut the, the requirement of a criminal trial because it's inefficient or we think it slows us down uh, and this is especially true when we create a profit incentive in forfeiture when law enforcement agencies and, and and prosecutors are the ones who get to keep what they forfeit that's a profit incentive and incentives matter we know that if they when they when they engage in forfeiture they get money that they wouldn't otherwise get and in fact in Arizona they get to keep 100% of it and that money goes into segregated funds that they get to use for their own benefit. And there's, even today, relatively weak checks on what they can do with that money. And and we've seen abuses coming out of the spending of that money as well. So civil forfeiture is a a system that has lots of problems meant to address an issue that it's really not addressing anymore.
0: So, how do we get change i mean i heard you talk about some some of the changes that were made i think it was back in 2017 by our legislature they changed the burden you know the to prove uh, that the forfeiture should happen if i remember right they talked about fee shifting so the person who's attempting for forfeiture the person who is property is being forfeited can get attorney's fees if they prevail right uh-huh. so we have had some changes here locally, but how do we get significant change?
1: So we, at IJ, we've been working on, again, forfeiture for, for well more than a decade now. And, and we've pursued a number of, of angles, and, and all of these have, have borne successes, and, and there's more to go. So there's, a, you know, we're lawyers. Uh, we like to sue people. I love suing people. I love suing the government. It's, it's the most <laughs> fun ever. Um, So we sue the government, um, and we sue the government because this profit incentive is a due process violation, and we have a number of courts that have recognized that as a problem. And in fact, uh, you know, a federal court in New Mexico struck down the the Albuquerque forfeiture program because of this obvious profit incentive, and a number of other courts have, have recognized that problem as well, including here in Arizona. Um, we have litigated on, on issues involving excessive fines. Um, so for example, the uh, Tims v. Indiana case that the US Supreme Court decided two years ago on excessive fines and forfeitures. We litigated that case and, and, and the US Supreme Court said, well, look, this forfeiture is an excessive fine. It's not allowed. And we've been fighting to get Tyson Tims, his, his car back uh, for a couple of years now. And it's, luckily that's, that's finally happened. Uh, On the legislative front, we've gone to legislatures across the country. Um, We've had some success with the DOJ curtailing for a while some of its more abusive practices, and unfortunately those were undone. We've gone to legislatures across the country. And the nice part about this issue is it's not a partisan issue. Republicans, Democrats, Greens, Libertarians— everyone recognizes that there's a real problem here. And so lots of states, California, Arizona, Montana, New Mexico, Nebraska, you name it. there's, there's nearly 30 states that have just had some sort of reform in just the last couple of years. Everything from eliminating civil forfeiture and making sure that, that criminal forfeiture is, is the only thing that's allowed and that the, the money from forfeiture goes to the state treasury instead of to the agencies that are involved. Um, more minor reforms, such as making attorney's fees available, and upping burdens of proof, uh, lots of things. And so the nice part about this issue here is it doesn't have to be a partisan issue at all. Lots of people recognize the problem, and it's, it's something that can be done. You know, I think the thing that's had the most effect, though, is people becoming aware of forfeiture. Uh, When I started personally on this issue six years ago, I would have to start most conversations with, well, let me tell you what civil forfeiture is, and then I would have to explain that, and then for the next 15 minutes after I explain that would be some variation of, no, really, that's the way it works. Yeah. Before people have learned about these problems, it's made it easier for courts to address them. It's made it much easier for legislatures to recognize that there's a problem and move on them.
0: It does seem unbelievable. I mean, this is not, like you said, a partisan issue. This is a real issue for real people. A rubber meets the road. This isn't theory. And it seems unbelievable, but it's true. This type of stuff happens. And, you know, like I said, in, in theory, civil forfeiture sounds great but the way it's been happening has been challenging. And I think we need to take a hard look at it and see if it's fair and see if we can make some changes to make uh, the good parts stick and the bad parts go away. Um, Paul, I wanna thank you for coming on the show. This has been incredible. The information you've given, and I hope that you will continue your fight and, uh, and keep having a good time while you do it. Um, And I need to also mention as a legal disclaimer, we are not your personal attorneys. We are giving general legal advice. So if you need an attorney, call one because they're lovable, they're fun, and they want to talk to you. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been the podcast, Is That Even Legal? A discussion of what's legal. Just as a reminder, this is not legal advice for you. This is general information. And it's meant to be educational. If you have specific legal needs, don't be afraid to reach out to an attorney to get good legal advice. Attorneys are lovable. They're fun. They want to hear from you. See you next time.